You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. It's always a joy for us to be able to sing such rich songs about the gospel and our faith together, especially on a Sunday morning when we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper as a part of our worship service. But before we do that, let me invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word, the Bible, Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. I have mentioned sometimes before uh, that a couple of years ago I started running in order to try to address some really minor health issues and kind of have gotten into understanding a bit more of what it means to run longer distances. And it really has been an interesting journey for me these two years. I hope it continues for a long time, which is a weird thing to say. I never thought I would say that about something like, like running. But over the course of these two years, I look back and I think about how I have learned through the discipline and the process a lot about my life, a lot about my, myself. I've learned things about God. I've learned things about the world. And I've learned things about other people. There's one reality or one lesson that I think keeps coming up over and over again to me as I run. I like to run, I like to run downtown. I like to run where there's lots of activity and cars and there are people. And there is this one thing that keeps coming to my mind as I'm running. And it's the pressing recognition that people are generally unhappy. The number of times I run past people who are walking somewhere or they're waiting at a bus stop or doing something else, every single person I pass at least appears to be unhappy. Rarely does anyone say good morning. Rarely does anyone wave. I don't know what their lives are like. I don't know if that's just appearance. There are certain social norms that we all try to you know, abide by. But it does seem that way. And in fact, I've, I've read a number of, I've started reading some running books to better understand this whole process of running. And one of the things that you notice there as well is that people who get into running very often, not in every case, but very often are running from their unhappiness. They're running from their personal demons. They're trying to run somewhere else to get away from anxieties or to deal with the stresses of life. And so putting all of that together, it just keeps bringing back to me, especially as we consider together as a church, Paul's words in the book of Philippians, which are so centered on the happiness that is offered to us by faith alone in Christ, that whether you're running or whether you're walking, the odds are you are unhappy. A recent poll found that only 14% of American adults would honestly be able to say that they feel they are very happy with their lives. This is a crisis. This is a crisis of the fallen world, if not the crisis of the fallen world. We've considered already so many times that we are hardwired to pursue this thing called happiness or joy or gladness. And then to find that in this fallen world, such a fraction of the population feels anything like 
happy lives. I think it gives us a wonderful opportunity as Christians. It gives us a wonderful opportunity to consider how we can offer to those whom we meet, those who we run past, those who we walk past, those who we sit with, those whose paths intersect ours and ours theirs, we are offering them true and lasting joy and gladness, true happiness by finding true righteousness through the person and work of Jesus Christ. We have an incredible privilege, and we want to consider that together as we continue to consider, just as our sermon series says by title, how we can continue learning. What does it mean for us to be happy in Christ? What does it mean for us to have joy in Christ? And so we continue to look to the Apostle Paul, who I believe is one of the happiest Christians we could possibly imagine. We look throughout, in particular, this letter to the Philippians, and he talks about this all the time. He wants his joy to be made complete. He wants the joy of these Philippians to be made complete. So we're coming here to verses 8 through 11, having just come from verse 7, which will sound somewhat familiar as I begin reading verse 8 in a moment. The Apostle Paul has been talking about his resume, reasons that he may have to boast about his life. All of the pursuits of his former life before Christ that he pursued this yearning for meaning as a meaning maker, for happiness and gladness and joy, and his spiritual resume was like none other. And then he says in verse 7 that whatever things like these were gain for me in this life, I have counted, there's the accounting language, counted them loss. I have written them off. I've exchanged them. I have thrown them away. And now we come to verse 8, and he continues on this incredible line of reasoning, of encouragement to his readers, which are the Philippians, but are also, uh, also us, as he extends that line of thinking to not simply putting away and counting his loss the spiritual competition with his faith in Christ, of those things that he did as as a Hebrew of Hebrews, as a a, a valedictorian of the Jews, uh, of someone who was a Pharisee and with zeal pursued what he thought was right and best. But now he says in verses 8 through 11 that he counts all things loss, which is an incredible statement that we want to dive into this morning. Let's begin by just noticing verses 8 and 9 to set the context of exactly what Paul's talking about. And then what I'd like for us to see is we consider this world that we live in as people who are fallen and sinners ourselves with many obstacles pushing against our pursuit of ultimate gladness and happiness in Christ. Also as people who are living in a fallen world among an entire world population that is generally if not significantly failing to find happiness, how we can offer it to them, we want to consider this morning three knowings that seem to me to be at the center of the ultimate joy that is characteristic of Paul's life. Three knowings. What must we know or what can we know through the gospel which will fuel our ultimate satisfaction in God and increase or magnify or maximize 
our happiness in Christ to the magnifying of his glory. That's what we're thinking about this morning, if you're tracking along. I used a lot of words there, but let's try to break them down as we look at verses 8 through 10 to set this context. Paul says this next. After saying, whatever things were gained to me, I have counted those as loss. He says in verse 8, more than that. So on top of that, I count all things loss in view or in exchange for, in a way, the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He goes on and says, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. His pursuit of Christ led him to willingly and also by suffering to lose everything that otherwise mattered to him. And then he goes on and says that he counts them mere rubbish. That's the word garbage. When compared to his faith in Christ and the gladness that comes from knowing Christ. That's what he means when he says the value of knowing Christ. He means satisfaction in his heart, ultimate satisfaction, compared to anything else that the world could offer or that he could muster up on his own by his own righteousness or his own self-will. He counts all of those things to be garbage. And he says he does it so that I may gain Christ. In verse 9, may be found in him. Now this is where we pick up again the reminder of these two paths that Paul is most concerned with. He seems in his writings to be most concerned with either following Christ by grace through faith. That means that we have no righteousness of our own, but rather we seek righteousness through the person and work of Jesus given to us as a gift by faith in him, we hear the gospel. He sovereignly changes our hearts, opens our eyes and our ears. We hear the truth of who Jesus is, and then we repent and we, we throw ourselves headlong onto him. Or the other path, which is the one he's, he is concerned about in the life of every Christian and of every person, is the path that seeks self-righteousness through law-keeping, through some kind of personal character development. And of course, because he talks about this so often, we know that this is not simply a problem out in the world. It's a problem in here with us. Because all of our hearts keep being pulled back by sin to this desire to, to think of ourselves as righteous because of what we could do or what we've done or what we say or, or how we live or the habits that we develop or, or those kinds of things. And that's why he says here in verse 9 that he wants to be found in him. Now listen to this. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through Faith alone in Christ. The righteousness instead, that's not a domestic righteousness. It's not a righteousness that is in my little kingdom, my little world here. But it's the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. That's the, the alien righteousness that comes to us by faith in the gospel. 
Paul is unpacking the Christian life in Philippians as he does in all of his writings to help us understand what is the true path of righteousness. And on that path, how can you find ultimate, real, lasting happiness in the alien righteousness that God gives by faith? So this is where we want to pick up on three knowings that Paul talks about. As we notice them, I want you to think about them with me about our own lives, and I want you to think about them with me with respect to the lives of other people, the people that we pass, the people that we sit with. How can we elevate these three knowings in such a way that they could, by God's grace, become the most attractive truths in the world to lead more and more people, including ourselves, closer and closer to Christ and further into his ultimate eternal happiness, the happiness that he offers us in the gospel. So let's notice these three knowings. Here's the first. It's going to sound very simple, but it's one of those things, uh, you, know, you know, sort of like a, like a, I don't know if it's an, a glacier or an iceberg. I never can keep them straight. Whichever one is, is small on the surface and then deep, deep down on the bottom, that's what this next statement is like, this first knowing. It looks pretty simple on the surface, but it's important because it goes so deep and wide under the surface, and it is first knowing Christ. That's a simple, wow, what a simple thing to say. It's just a few words. The first knowing that leads us into true righteousness and ongoing true happiness in Christ is knowing Christ. That's what he says in verse 10. He moves from verse 9 with these words, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him. So this is the reason that he gives as to why he counts all things as loss. Anything that would tempt him to feel righteous in that thing, he puts it away. He throws it away. He, he views it as trash. He throws it in the bin and he exchanges it for something richer. And that is this thing called knowing Christ. But notice that this says something very specific and very key to Paul's theology and ours about his purpose in counting all things as loss. His purpose is to gain Christ. Now, Here's what we have to get out of the way from the start, because every heart in the room, mine included, runs along the path of self-salvation and self-righteousness, even when we read these words, which is to say this, if I'm willing to give up all of these other things, I can exchange them for something more important, or I can earn the real righteousness by putting away my self-righteousness. You hear what's wrong with that, right? It's the same works-based language. It's the same kind of thinking. That's not what Paul means. Paul does not mean, I counted all things loss so that I may earn Christ. He means it instead as an exchange of surrender, not an exchange of earning. Rather than giving up to earn he gives up to receive. Uh, one picture that comes to mind for me might be, and these are all imperfect pictures, if we had a wedding here and there was a, a fiancé or bride-to-be standing here and there's a, a, 
a groom standing here, groom-to-be, and the bride is here holding this bouquet. What happens in every wedding ceremony? She gives up the bouquet to usually like the maid of honor or someone and frees her hands so that she can take the hands of her to be husband in that moment and become married to him. That's what it is. She doesn't give up the bouquet to earn her husband. She gives up the bouquet to open her hands to receive freely the grace that comes from having him as husband. Or even in the reverse, there is the same kind of thing that happens on the other side. There's a fundamental difference here. This is the fundamental difference Paul is always harping on. We should harp on it. It's the difference between what we sometimes in our church have referred to as a covenant of works and a covenant of promise. The covenant of works says this, do this and you can earn the promise or you can earn the blessing. The covenant of promise says, take and receive freely without earning, without giving, without buying. That's what the gospel message is. It is that Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose again, not so that he would have a treasure we could earn from him, but so that he would give us freely by grace alone the gift of what we need most, ultimate righteousness. And even here, notice that Paul also, in verses 8 and 9, he also shows the kind of gift that is our creatureliness. It's, again, the reminder that as creatures, we cannot do both. You cannot have self-righteousness based on your own works, your own character, your own habits, even spiritual habits, and the righteousness of Christ, they don't mix together. As creatures, we cannot hold both. We have to let go of the one in order to receive the other. We know this in other ways when the Bible speaks more plainly about our lives, and it comes through to us there, so maybe it helps us to be reminded of Matthew 6, 24, No one can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. In this case, you cannot serve both God and money. It's the same principle. We can't have both. We don't have the capacity for them. But what Paul is pointing out is that if you really want to be righteous, if you really want then to be happy, the way is to gain Christ, to receive him on his terms, which is not earning by works. It is receiving by faith. So what does that mean we do in order to receive by faith? Do we give something up? Do we exchange something and then in return he gives us his, his favor or his love or his forgiveness or he gives us gladness and joy? What do we do? We only open our hands to receive. That's all. That's, that's not a work. That's the work of faith. That's what faith means. It means to open your hands. This is the first application or use to our lives of this point of knowing Christ is that we need to open our hands to God's blessing. And we've already learned that that word blessing means ultimate happiness and gladness. Open our hands to Christ's heart-satisfying, soul-gladdening grace and mercy. 
by faith. And this is true of every person here. If you're not a Christian, you might be a person who who's, seems kind of close. You're sort of Christian in your life. There's certain kind of Christianly things that you do. But when it comes down to it, you relate to God on the basis of your works. You think that he will give you good things because you do good things for him. That's covenant of works. That's, that's the legalism that Paul is rooting out of the church in every chapter of his writings. In, in particular, the book of Philippians and the book of Galatians and every other one. If that's the way that you relate to God fundamentally then that puts you outside of the gospel. It puts you outside of faith in Christ. It, it would mean that you, you don't belong to him because those are not the terms of his covenant. The terms of his covenant are not earning. The terms of his covenant are merely receiving by grace. So it could be that if you're here today or hearing this sermon, that you may realize with God's help that that's you. That you see yourself, you value yourself on the basis of what you can do for God rather than valuing God on the basis of what he freely gives you. If that's you, then you need to come to Christ by faith alone. You need to do what Paul does. Paul counts all of those things as loss. He picks them up and he throws them in the trash bin and, and, and shuts the lid. And then he comes to Christ open-handed, empty. I have nothing. I bring you nothing. I don't bring any righteousness. I don't bring any law-keeping. I don't bring any good intentions. There's nothing good in me. If you're going to save me, it'll be simply because you want to save me. If you're going to love me, it will simply because you want to love me, not because I'm lovable. Then that's what you need to do. Then you need to be like Paul. But if you're here and you are a Christian, you might also find these hints of this law kind of relationship still surfacing. It bubbles up out of the ground of your heart from time to time. You, you think of your, your relationship with him in terms of give and take, not receive and receive and receive and receive. You, you think more in terms of your law keeping. And on the days that you keep the law real good, you feel real good. And on the days that you keep the law real bad, you feel real bad. It's that dynamic that's at play that Paul wants to eradicate. He wants to blow it up, out of the water, gone forever. Why? Because he wants you to be happy. He wants you to be one of the few people in the world who have some sense of real, lasting happiness and gladness in Christ because of the kind of righteousness that you depend on. And he wants us all to have it more and more and more. Therefore, the first application is that we need to open our hands, no matter who we are. You need to open your hands to receive through faith alone, by grace alone, the ongoing gift of the gospel which is blessing upon blessing to you. They're not material blessings, they're spiritual blessings working in your heart to satisfy you so that you can rest and rejoice and be glad in Christ even when the world is not, even when the waves are rolling. First knowing 
is knowing Christ. When we offer the gospel to people, we are offering them to know Christ. And knowing Christ is, I think, much more, even just in these short moments that we've talked about it, I know in my own mind, as I'm working through it with you in real time, it is much more than I have you know, anticipated. Um, the glacier iceberg is deeper than I thought. And that's what we want. We've got to keep swimming down, keep seeing. What does it mean to know Christ? This is what we're getting at. Here's the second knowing, though, that Paul talks about next. He says right after this that he also wants to know something he calls the power of his resurrection. Now, notice this. When he talks about knowing, both in knowing Christ and in knowing the power of his resurrection, in particular here, he's not talking about a, a factual knowing. He's not exactly talking about a working knowledge. What he really is talking of is an experiential knowledge. He, he, in other words, he doesn't mean what I really want to know is I want to know the resurrection. I, I want to know the doctrine of the resurrection, though that's very important. That's part of the Christian life and this whole process of growth. I, it's not that I want to know the doctrine of the resurrection. That's not what he says. He says, I want to know the power of the resurrection. And of course, there's no way to talk like that and mean, I want to know how many kilowatts of power are in the resurrection. I want to measure it and see it on a chart and print it out so that I could see all the results. He means more experiential. He wants to experience in his life the power of the resurrection. Puritans have often written about this very thing. Sometimes they call it experiential theology. Sometimes they call it experimental theology. That's an important word. If you think about what it means to do an experiment, it means not simply to to get facts and observations, but to really delve into something, knowing and applying whatever this thing is to life. So their theology was something that was to be known experientially and applied to life. The word experiential or, or experimental, it means to test or to try something out, to really work and experience something. Listen to what Richard Baxter, one famous Puritan, said uh, kind of in this way as he talked about theology and the experience of it, which is what Paul's getting at. Doctrine, he says, doctrine is the fuel of devotion. There's something more than just knowing facts about the Bible or knowing facts about God or being able to have a conversation and talk it out. Doctrine is the fuel of devotion. We kindle our fire at the beams of truth. As we understand more, we love more. And devotion grows He says, thus our knowledge is not without devotion, but increases it. It's not the head only, but the head and heart that must be employed in knowing and worshiping God. Use an everyday kind of picture. It it might be something like this. I don't... I don't really have a desire to because I'm too afraid of heights to skydive, but it would be the difference between wanting to know skydiving and wanting to know the thrill or the freedom of skydiving. There's a difference there. You can read books about skydiving. You can learn about the plane and how high they are and how they pack the parachute. You can know all of that 
without ever experiencing it. Now, what does Paul mean when he says, I want to know the power of the resurrection? It means that he wants to skydive. He, he doesn't want to just know about it. He wants to experience the thrill, the freedom, the happiness, the life-changing power of Jesus' resurrection. He wants the resurrection to make a powerful difference in his life. I heard just this week, you know, obviously very sad um, thing happened in the death of Tim Keller. One of the great, if not, I mean, could be the most influential theologian of the last 50 years. Incredible, incredible impact and in so many different ways, a gift upon gift upon gift to the church. And then just, uh, just this past week lost his, uh, you know, ongoing fight with, with cancer. But there's one of these videos, you know, people share these videos when he's sitting with people or he's on a call and he's, he's kind of just sharing his heart. And there was one that really stuck out to me, especially in light of what we're reading today from Paul. And I think it highlights a bit, it's, it's not exhaustive, but a bit of what Paul is getting at when he says, I want to know the power of the resurrection. This is what Tim Keller said. He says, if Jesus Christ was actually raised from the dead... And, of course, we know that he means since Jesus Christ was actually raised from the dead. Then everything is going to be all right. Whatever you're worried about, whatever you're afraid of, everything will actually be okay. That is a concise statement from someone who in some way knows the power of the resurrection. It's not, it's not a theoretical idea of the resurrection, whether it happened or not. But because Jesus Christ actually did rise from the dead, the power of his resurrection guarantees in my life that everything is going to be okay. I belong to him. He belongs to me. He's sovereign God of the universe. He has dealt with my, my number one problem, sin. And he has granted to me by grace righteousness and care forevermore. His goodness will run after me everywhere that I go. Paul wants to know the power of his resurrection. Another way that we could put this, Paul wants to live within the implications of the resurrection. He wants the fact of the resurrection, that Jesus is a living Savior today, to touch upon his life in such a way that he is changed, that he's helped, that he's really comforted, that he's encouraged, that he's made glad because of the resurrection. He's digging down into something that many of us, myself included, struggle to dig down into. We just have so many things going on. We have so many distractions. We are bombarded with worries and anxieties. We're a basket case a lot of the time. Other time we're distracted with all of the distractions available to us in our world and in our country. And we've got problem upon problem um, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our country, in our world. And we just can't dig into it. But Paul is encouraging us to do this very thing, to know and seek to know the power of his resurrection. So here's another application for us, something that we can do to work at this even this week. 
What if we all, in, in our own lives, in our own personal quiet time with God, just made a little bit of a habit here of making a list of resurrection power implications? How does the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually change our lives? How does this power work in us? Since Jesus Christ was actually raised from the dead, blank, and start filling in the blank. Think of as many as you possibly can. I'll get you started with a few. Something like this. We, as Christians, have hope in the face of adversity and trials, knowing that Jesus has conquered death. We experience a deep sense of joy and gratitude, knowing that Jesus has secured our eternal life. We find comfort in times of grief and loss, knowing that Jesus has overcome death's sting. We have an intimate relationship with the risen Christ through prayer, knowing that he is alive and present with us. How long of a list could you make? You could make a long one in a relatively short period of time. But then we need to work at them. You know, we need to, we need to seek to know them, to rehearse them, to look into them, these truths, to look into God's word and seek out more help and wisdom to understand how does the resurrection actually change my life? How can I know its power in my life? So that's the second knowing. And this is also what we are offering to people. I, I, I think if you're like me, you've overlooked this a lot in your evangelism and sharing the gospel with people. We're sometimes hesitant to offer people in the world the very best gifts that come out of the gospel. It's why we're a little hesitant to say to people, Jesus Christ can make you happy all by himself. We're hesitant to say that because we're afraid of what kind of motives might be at work in there, but that's what we're doing. That's what, that's what the gospel is doing. And the gospel does this one as well. What are we offering? We're offering for people to know the very real power of the resurrection. And so we should be offering that. We should be offering that to each other to be thinking about how we can follow in Paul's footsteps, theological footsteps here, in his spiritual life and bring this into our own, the second knowing. Here's the third knowing, and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, is this. Paul also says next, in the, the next part of verse 10, there's sort of three parts, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and then the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. That's the third knowing. If you want to be happy in Christ, you must know Christ. You can know the power of his resurrection and in increasing fashion. And three, to know the fellowship of his sufferings. Again, Paul speaks here of knowing, but he uses, this is an interesting, think about it for a minute. This is an interesting turn of phrase that he's using. The fellowship of his sufferings. I've never heard anyone else talk like that except Paul. Not, not that I can think of. He's saying something that is unique to Christianity. It's unique to this kind of faith in Christ. Fellowship. Okay, what does fellowship mean? 
Fellowship means comfort. It's comforting. It's encouraging. It's a kind of camaraderie together that, that brings us together and gives us relief and comfort and help and holds us up. Okay, Fellowship of his sufferings. Now, we're not talking about any sufferings, just, just plain old regular sufferings. It's included, but we're, he's talking about Christ's sufferings. What do you know about Christ's sufferings? Christ's sufferings were humiliating. They're the worst kind of sufferings. Humiliating suffering, excruciating suffering, which even this, the reason we call it excruciating is because Jesus died on the cross. That's what excruciate means, from the cross. When you say, I had excruciating pain the other day, you're saying it's like crucifixion. This is the suffering, but this is the turn of phrase. What would... What would compel you to put those two things together? They, they don't go together. Fellowship of excruciating sufferings. The comfort and camaraderie and encouragement of excruciating suffering. That's what I want to know. I want to fellowship with his sufferings. It's, again, the reminder of what Jesus has done in the gospel, which is amazing. It's, it's astounding. He's taking something bad, which is his habit, and turning it into something good. But he's taking the worst of bad things and turning it into something good. What is that like? That's like, I read recently about, um, in the Netherlands, there is an artist named Jerwin Kulhas, and he lives in a part of the Netherlands that's pretty, pretty run down, kind of like a typical kind of urban scene where things are just run down, they haven't been taken care of, and, and you imagine that it's, it's probably pretty rough. And so what he's done is he's gone in and he has painted, I'll show you some pictures on the slide there, he's gone in and he's painted murals in the city. Um, go to the next slide. He's painted murals in the city on the walls so that he could take this this bad scene and try to turn it for good. It's, that's an amazing thing. I mean, look at that. The way he's gone into this neighborhood and, and painted this or even painted a mural of someone painting on a wall. This is the same kind of thing that Paul is talking about. The fellowship of his sufferings is what turns his sufferings into something good. They're no longer merely excruciating. They are comforting. They are encouraging. They're helpful. They're life-changing. It's the power. It's as if he were to say, I want to know the power of his sufferings, not merely his resurrection. This is what Jesus is in the habit of doing. This is what he happily does, if we can say it, all day long. All day long, that's what he does, is take bad things and turn them into good things. To leverage bad, difficult things like suffering, even his own suffering on the cross, and turn it into something that could be useful as fellowship. But the difference between this artist in the Netherlands and Jesus is this artist is just putting a, a slather of paint on the outside. Jesus does not simply put a paint job on suffering. He actually has utterly changed it. Again, to think back about the Puritans, this theme that they often discussed of redeeming something like the time is the same idea. Taking the ordinary wasted time of the day 
and redeeming it, giving it a value that it otherwise didn't have, making time redemptive. But here's the good news. Here's the good news for people who live in an unhappy world. Here's the good news for a room of people, including me, who generally struggle to be happy and don't know how to be happy even in Christ very well. But we're learning Jesus has taken the pain of his ultimate suffering and turned it into our happy friend. He has taken his own suffering, his own crucifixion, paying the penalty for us and turned it into our friend so that even our own sufferings work for our good, work for our happiness. That's what we mean when we say, for your good. It's such a beautiful picture. It's such, it's such a gracious thing to do. Romans 8, 28, you know this verse well. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. John 15, 11, using the word caring, gladness, happiness. These things I have spoken to you, Jesus says, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That's what he's doing. And that's why Paul is delighted to know the fellowship of his sufferings. He wanted to attain, as he says in verse 11, to the resurrection from the dead. Again, important wording. We should get that straight and keep it in context of what Paul says. It's, he's not a trade-off. He doesn't want to suffer, suffer, suffer so I can get the resurrection or I can get eternal life. He's using the word attain in the sense of arriving in the end. I want to know the fullness of his resurrection, my resurrection from the dead. Therefore, what I think we need to do is what Paul does, is what Jesus does, is to inject the joy of Christ into our view of all things for good, even our suffering. This is a big difference between the way that I tend to suffer and the way it appears Paul suffers. He doesn't do it perfectly, but he does it better than I do. He injects the happiness or joy of Christ into even his suffering, which is you know, far greater than any suffering any of us have faced. Paul wants to be conformed to his death. He wants to be mapped on to the death of Christ as the redemptive path to the ultimate joy of the resurrection. Therefore, final application before we take the Lord's Supper today is to do what Paul does here. What is he doing? He is seeking out the ultimate happiness of Christ in every moment that he lives. He is striving to know these things, knowing Christ, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, so that he may know the joy of knowing Christ, that his heart will be satisfied and that his all other things would remain where they belong, in the trash, when compared to what it means to know him. 
We have such an opportunity on these Sundays to celebrate the Lord's Supper and to bring into this truth just an incredible amount of light and heat to help us, to help us understand what does it mean to belong to Christ. I'm going to invite those who are helping to distribute the elements to come forward now. And I also want to give the encouragement that if you're here today and you don't belong to Christ, you're not a Christian, as I was talking about earlier, this would be the time for you to observe and pray and ask God, as we ask him as well, to give you everything that you need so that you could believe in him and then take this Lord's Supper. It wouldn't be right to, to take of what represents his body and his blood if his body and his blood don't really belong to you or if you don't look to him for righteousness. But if you do, if he is your righteousness, if he's the one that you belong to, and he's the one who has, who has done all for you and you have faith in him, whether you're a member of our church or not, by all means, take the Lord's Supper with us so that we can, just as Paul said, rejoice and know, know a little more the power of his resurrection. As I pray, we'll begin distributing the elements, so uh, watch out for them. And then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to us in every way. And we thank you that you have been at work in our hearts to change us as we have read your word this morning. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is doing a work only he can do to illuminate our hearts and our minds, to understand and to appreciate and value what you say in your word. And God, we pray that you would help us Help us to pursue you in these ways. Help us to know you according to these three knowings that we have considered today. We thank you that you are rejoicing over us at every moment and you continue to work in our hearts. Please, please help us to love you and know you and to be more satisfied in you, to cast off all of the things that could be considered as loss, uh, that, that could be considered as gain, that we would count them as loss today. And we pray this uh, as we take the Lord's Supper together. In Jesus' name, amen.